When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Senator Bob Menendez says there is a good reason he had nearly half a million dollars in cash stuffed in envelopes and jackets at his home. The leak starts right now. A defiant defense. Senator Bob Menendez denying federal charges against him. How he justifies all that money stuffed in envelopes and jackets and close ties with Egyptian officials. But what about those gold bars and the Mercedes Benz? Plus, less than a week until a government shutdown. What Speaker Kevin McCarthy just told CNN about his chances of cutting a deal with Democrats and his fellow Republicans threatening to oust him from office if he does. And Donald Trump back on the trail, playing to his MAGA base at a gun store in South Carolina. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Erica Hill in for Jake Tapper. We begin with our law and justice lead. A defiant Senator Bob Menendez pushing back today on calls for him to resign. To those who have rushed to judgment, you have done so based on a limited set of facts framed by the prosecution to be as salacious as possible. Instead of waiting for all the facts to be presented, others have rushed to judgment because they see a political opportunity for themselves or those around them. The New Jersey Democrat speaking publicly for the first time since he, his wife, and three others were indicted last Friday on bribery charges. Menendez is accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, gold bars, home mortgage payments, even a Mercedes convertible, in exchange for his influence as a U.S. senator. Prosecutors say Menendez used that power to benefit himself, others, and even the Egyptian government. It is the second time in 10 years the senator has been charged with corruption-related offenses. Today, the senator tried to explain why he says he had so much cash, more than $480,000, stuffed into jackets and envelopes, and also spoke about his connections to officials in Egypt. CNN's Lauren Fox starts our coverage with more on what Senator Menendez is calling his biggest fight yet. A defiant Senator Bob Menendez, vowing not to resign as he faces down federal corruption charges. I firmly believe that when all the facts are presented, not only will I be exonerated, but I still will be the New Jersey's senior senator. Menendez facing a barrage of pressure to step aside. Fellow Democratic Senator John Fetterman tweeting, quote, He's entitled to the presumption of innocence, but he cannot continue to wield influence over national policy. The situation is uh, quite unfortunate, but I do believe that it is in the best interests uh, for Senator Menendez to resign in this moment. They are calls Menendez says are premature, as he offers new explanations rebutting the allegations. Any New Jersey voters watching right now who may have concerns that, again, you're facing scrutiny over corruption, what is your response to them? The response to that is simply that, number one, uh, this inquiry will end up, I believe, in absolutely nothing. In an indictment last week, federal prosecutors allege Menendez received hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in the form of cash, gold and a luxury vehicle in exchange for the senator's influence. 
Prosecutors say some of that evidence included DNA and fingerprints of one of the business contacts Menendez allegedly accepted bribes from. For 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies and because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Now, this may seem old-fashioned, but these were monies drawn from my personal savings account based on the income that I have lawfully derived over those 30 years. Menendez now faces a Democratic primary challenge from Representative Andy Kim, one of six members of the New Jersey congressional delegation calling on him to resign. There are a lot of concerns about his integrity, and I think it's important that we do everything we can to restore faith in, from the American people in their government. So that's why I'm stepping up to run against him. Democratic leader Dick Durbin stopped short of calling for resignation. This is a very serious charge. There's no question about it. In terms of resignation, that's a decision to be made by Senator Menendez and the people of New Jersey. Senator Menendez is due in court on Wednesday. When he returns to Capitol Hill, however, he will no longer wield the gavel of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is going to be temporarily stepping aside under Senate rules. The committee will now be run by the top Democrat, Ben Cardin, who will fill in while Menendez moves forward with these court proceedings. Erica. Lauren Fox, appreciate it. Thank you. Let's discuss now. So as we look at what uh, has been laid out in this indictment and what we heard today, Renato, there is a, a lot of evidence in there. The cash, the gold bars, the luxury car, allegations that are, of course, not limited to the senator's actions. Today, though, Senator Menendez addressed only the cash. You're an attorney. You're a former federal prosecutor. As you look at this, if you were his attorney, how are you feeling about those comments today in terms of what was and what was not addressed? Uh, well, I, frankly, if I was representing him, I would prefer he'd say nothing at all. I mean, one of the challenges of representing someone in his circumstances is that he's going to feel the need to be out there defending himself. But every word he says uh, ultimately um, boxes him in and, and locks him into a defense. Ultimately, he can't take the stand and say something different or else he's going to be in peace with the statements that he just made. I think realistically, Erica, this is a very, very challenging set of facts for the senator to explain away. I mean, you also you mentioned you didn't talk about the gold bars. Of course, he didn't talk about the Google searches that he, he you know he made about what you know what to do with the gold bars. Uh, but I think the bigger fault line is going to be a trial is really you know him trying to distance himself from official actions taken on behalf of the Egyptian government. I actually think I mean the 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 money and the gold bars are kind of priced in. In other words, the jury is going to take that. And they're not going to like it. He'll have to have some explanation there. But he's going to have to try to convince the jury that he doesn't, you know, he wasn't trying to help the Egyptian government. I think it'll be hard. I think mm -hmm. it's an uphill battle. And I think uh, he should be considering uh, a guilty plea. Uh, well, when asked about Menendez today, uh, White House Press Secretary, Press Secretary, excuse me, Queen Jean-Pierre, called this a serious matter. Didn't comment further, though. Kate, how does this complicate things for the White House and also for the president in terms of his reelection bid? Well, I'm not sure that it complicates things for his reelection bid, because I think actually what you're seeing here is the stark difference between the way Republicans have responded to uh, criminal charges against Donald Trump and the way you're seeing Democrats respond here, which is to say, uh, you know, some to call in his resignation, some to say the process should play out. The you know, senator's entitled to a full 
uh, treatment of, from the justice system. Uh, so I think that what this is actually doing is putting on display the difference between kind of, you know, Republicans who are, are quick to cry weaponization of the justice system and to, you know, deny that uh, anything Donald Trump is, has done is anything but perfect. Uh, and Democrats who, you know, when faced with serious allegation like this, uh, take it seriously and say so. So I don't think there's going to be a complication for the president's reelect here. Also, remember, Senator Menendez is not a national name. Certainly he holds a, an important uh, position in the Senate, but, you know, he's not somebody who's a household name across the country. This is not the kind of thing that's going to con- be all consuming from a narrative and communications perspective. Scott, when we look at this, you know, as Kate brought up, this idea that many Republicans have and been sounding this steady drumbeat of a weaponization of the Justice Department, do these new charges undermine, undercut that argument? Oh, great question. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess maybe. I, I also think Kate is uh, putting as, as happy a face as possible on, on whether this complicates things for Democrats. I mean, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, Dick Derby, you know what they all three have in common? Not a single one of them has called for uh, Menendez to step down, and they've been very uh, hands-off with this guy right now. And so while they're out banging on Donald Trump for all of his legal entanglements, uh, they seem to be uh, worried about uh, being too critical uh, of Menendez. Yeah, you've had a couple of gadflies calling him to resign, but that's about it. So what's he's, what he's hearing from his party leadership, in my opinion, is support. Uh, and so uh, we'll see how it turns out. You know, Menendez's lived experiences, you can get accused of corruption, you can get a hung jury, and you get reelected to the United States Senate. And we obviously live in a post-shame society uh, and so I don't expect him to do anything other than plow straight ahead and see if he can't beat it again. The Kate, idea when it comes to oh, sorry, go ahead, Kate. Go no, I was just going to say the idea that we would compare the, uh, the essentially the crimes that we've seen from Donald Trump over the last uh, two, three years, which we've seen on full display uh, to these allegations, which, again, are serious. And Democrats have said they're serious. The idea that we would compare those two things as if they are comparable in terms of uh, public evidence that we've seen t- uh, to date. Uh, that's, that doesn't quite pass the smell test. But, uh, but I do think, again, that what you're seeing is the difference between the way Republicans uh, react, which is in a very sort of uh, protect the team and, uh, you know, willing to go to bat uh, for any, uh, any transgression that Donald Trump has, uh, has committed uh, versus the way Democrats are reacting, which is to say, let the justice system do its job. Some Democrats are saying that, Kate, but it is important to point out in the state of New Jersey, that is not what you're hearing from Democrats, from the governor uh, and across multiple important positions of leadership and, and law, uh, pardon me, um, lawmakers that we're seeing there. They are saying that Mendendez should resign. Do you agree? Should he be considering that at this moment? Well, look, obviously, that's a decision for him. I think if you take a step back and look at the politics, do I think he should be considering resignation? I do. I think the question for him is, does he want to spend the next year plus uh, talking about nothing but this in, within his own race and within uh, the state there in New Jersey? Uh, I'm not sure if I were his political advisor, I would advise him that that's something he wants to do. But obviously, ultimately, that'll be a decision for him. Uh, and I'm just getting word, too, that Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown also now calling uh, for that. Renato, as you look at all of this and what is in that indictment, again, these are allegations, um, but those pictures, what we see in that indictment, do you foresee more damning details when it comes to discovery? I do. I mean, I don't think the, the prosecutors were pulling any punches. But that said, there's a lot here, uh, and it sure really looks very difficult uh, for uh, Senator Menendez to overcome. I, I do appreciate what he's saying that, you know, you are only hearing the government's perspective, and, you know, and it is possible to defeat the government. He discovered that uh, the first time. I've done it in, in private practice as well, but uh, to be very blunt, I don't see lightning striking twice here for Senator Menendez. Renato Scott, Kate, good to have you all with us. Thank you.
Uh, taking a look now at the other side of Capitol Hill and the very latest comments from Speaker Kevin McCarthy, what he just said about threats from his own GOP colleagues to force him out of office if he cuts a deal with Democrats, a deal they don't like. Plus, how Donald Trump explains President Biden's decision to go to Michigan this week, one day before he planned to go. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Back now with our politics lead and our other big story on Capitol Hill, the looming government shutdown. With fewer than six days for lawmakers to fund the government, there is no clear plan. Hardline Republicans are unwilling to work with Democrats to pass a short-term spending bill as they dangle a mutiny over Speaker Kevin McCarthy's head. CNN's Manu Raju is at the Capitol. So, Manu, even the latest Republican strategy, championed by hardliner Matt Gates, appears to be dead on arrival, certainly dead on arrival in the Senate. So where do we stand? Yeah, Speaker McCarthy is really caught between two things, trying to keep the government open and trying to keep his job. And it's unclear how either will play out. One, I'm trying to keep the government open. He's still trying to pass a bill along party lines in the House a Republican bill to keep the government open for a short period of time. But there's a problem. He doesn't have the votes to do that because a number of those hardline members are simply not there. Say they will not be there. And McCarthy can only lose to lose four votes at most if he decides to go along party lines and include conservative proposals in there. And then there's the warning that if he does cut a deal with Democrats, that could be enough to push him out of the speakership. A number of Republicans on the far right have made that very clear to me and have made that clear publicly that they will not accept that. So I had a chance to ask Speaker McCarthy this question just moments ago, whether or not he is not cutting a deal with Democrats because he's worried if he did that, it would push him out of the speakership. How much is the fact that if you do cut a deal with Democrats, there could be a vote to push you out? How much is that driving your decision making right now? Nothing drives my decision. If that was driving my decision, wouldn't that driven my decision making 15 times before? My, but you could you know, have cut a deal with Democrats, and that could be the end of it. Did I cut it. a deal then? No, so it could did, be I, over. did I cut a deal then? When? When? For the, when I went 15 rounds? No, I'm talking about right now. For okay, but, but, but let, me, let me explain something to you. I'm no different than I was then or before. My whole focus, what's in my mind, what drives me, is the American people. I'm not worried if someone makes a motion. I'm not worried if somebody votes no. So as the House Republicans are struggling to move forward, Senate leaders are in talks of trying to move their own plan. But even if a bill passes by bipartisan support in the Senate, there's no guarantee that it will get the votes in the House to move ahead. McCarthy will not commit to that. So just major questions looming over Washington this week, Erica. 
also looming over Washington, the former president, uh, who is weighing in. Um, he's got a pitch. Uh, are lawmakers listening? Yeah, he's basically saying to shut it down. In fact, he said that in a social media post. He said, unless you get everything, shut it down. He said that on social media, something that is just not helpful for Kevin McCarthy at this point. In fact, he is arguing the opposite. McCarthy is saying, if you shut it down, that's going to backfire on Republicans politically. But those members that listen to Donald Trump, especially many of them in that faction that refuses to bend in these spending talks, are going to listen to Trump and not McCarthy, which is only going to complicate his calculation as McCarthy tries to round up the votes, get GOP votes, but at the moment doesn't have them. Erica? Manu at the Capitol. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, joining me now, Colorado Republican Congressman Ken Buck. Sir, good to have you with us this afternoon. Uh, picking up where Manu left off there, how much sway does the former president hold over your colleagues at this moment? Oh, I don't think he holds any sway. I think that uh, Kevin McCarthy has a problem because he made uh, one promise when he was getting elected speaker that he would uh, hold spending to a $1.47 trillion number. He then went during a debt ceiling negotiations and negotiated with the president a $1.65 trillion number. And now he is talking to Republicans about a $1.52 trillion number, which Democrats have uh, said they won't accept because it's less than the debt ceiling deal. So uh, you now have three numbers that are floating around the Capitol and uh, it is up to Kevin McCarthy to try to figure out how he's going to get 218 votes uh, to pass something. But the people who are uh, upset and want the lower number are the people who voted for him ultimately um, after the 15th ballot or during the 15th ballot uh, for his speaker's race. And that's the number that, uh, that a lot of us are expecting that we will uh, see for a continuing resolution mm-hmm. and uh, the upcoming budget. So you said to my colleague, Abby Phillip, uh, just before the weekend that you didn't believe the government was going to shut down, but also pointed out to her that you were staying in Washington over the weekend to work. You say this is on Speaker McCarthy to get it figured out, but you were trying to work on it as well. So was there any movement over the weekend? I I think there were a lot of good discussions. I think we have four appropriations bills that will come to the floor. Um, I know I will vote for the rule on those appropriations bills. I did the last time on the on the uh, Department of Defense appropriations bill. So I think that uh, passing four appropriations bills early this week would be a very good step towards finding uh, some common ground on a continuing resolution. I can tell you that no Republican and no Democrat wants to see government shut down. We just got to work harder and make sure we get that number right and, and pass it. So, so you say you will vote, yes, on those full year appropriations bill, and you're confident there are enough of your colleagues that will follow that? I, I will vote yes on the procedural rule that puts okay. the four appropriations bills on the floor. Um, I'm not sure I will vote yes on all four. I haven't seen all four yet, but I will uh, certainly vote yes on some of those uh, appropriations bills. Um, when we look at what could happen here, historically, letting the government shut down is not seen as a winning strategy. It certainly doesn't help to win elections. And just to refresh uh, folks's, fo- the memory for people at home, what it could mean, active military members could go without pay, TSA workers, air traffic controllers as well, border patrol agents going without pay, thousands of non-essential government workos, workers will be furloughed. I know you've said you don't think it's going to happen, but if we look at the timeline, it is not on your side right now. Will it be worth it ultimately? Well, it's never worth it, and it's always terrible. But uh, when you talk about active duty military, uh, essential government employees, 
those who are guarding our prisons, those who are guarding this country, those who are um, actively working criminal cases, those folks uh, are essential and they will not be furloughed. So it is a, it's really a fraction of the uh, federal government that may be furloughed during the shutdown. But it's not worth it. I'm not trying to excuse the behavior. Um, I think that we should have been passing appropriations bills for months now. Uh, we should be at a point where we don't need a stopgap measure where we would have passed our 12 appropriations bills by now. There are also concerns about for even people who, as you say, may still get paid, people who may not get paid in the moment, though, if we're talking about back pay. How concerning is that for many people? Uh, look, I think most Americans can understand what it's like if all of a sudden you learn you still have to go to work, but you're not getting that check this week. Well, um, a lot of people who don't go to work will get a check, uh, ultimately, because they will get uh, back pay. Um, it is not an ideal situation. We should do everything we can to avoid that situation. I don't disagree with that at all. Mm -hmm. But this is something we knew uh, September 30th was coming all year. In fact, for thousands of years, it has come after September 29th. It has not changed. But now we know that we don't have 12 appropriations bills passed, so we've got to do something, and it's a stopgap measure. But it can't be more spending. You know, we're spending, uh, we're going to have $2 trillion of debt. By the time President Biden gets out of his first term, we'll have $36 trillion of debt. You really can't blame the seven people who want to slow down spending for where we are right now. All right, we're going to watch for more of these developments in these coming days, these five days and change that are left. Um, you laid out last week as a member of the House Freedom Caucus why you're opposed to this impeachment inquiry into President Biden, noting that the Republican narratives about his wrongdoing are based on myth. Do any of your colleagues in the Freedom Caucus, do they agree with you in private? Um, you know, I haven't really talked to a lot of folks about impeachment. I think we're so focused right now on the shutdown that uh, it is not something that uh, I, I have had discussions with. I know that many of my Freedom Caucus uh, colleagues have said publicly that they are in favor of an impeachment inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, I have had other members uh, from the Republican conference come up to me and talk to me about how they support my position, um, that, that the, the current investigations, judiciary, ways and means, uh, oversight, are sufficient at this point. It's not as if I'm saying we shouldn't look uh, into Hunter Biden's activities to see if there's a nexus with Joe Biden. It's just we shouldn't start this impeachment process because the other investigations are sufficient. Um, before I let you go, do you think Speaker McCarthy will weather this? I do, and I, I mentioned before, I don't think anybody wants this job. Uh, it is a horrible, <laughs> you know, herding cats is a very difficult process. And when you've got cats with big egos in this building, uh, it is very difficult to do. Republican Congressman Ken Buck, appreciate your time this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. So just who takes the bigger political hit if a government shutdown actually happens? Republicans or Democrats? That side of the debate, plus the ripple effect a shutdown could have for you, the American taxpayer. That's next. In our politics lead, former President Trump is out campaigning in South Carolina today. Before his rally, he stopped by a gun store. We're back now with our panel. So, Scott, um, initially his campaign had said he bought a gun. Then they had to clarify the former president did not buy a gun at this stop. What's the benefit to him here as a candidate? Is this about you know, sort of drawing up support among the base? Is it pandering? Is it a smart move? Put it in context. Well, first of all, I'm glad he didn't buy it because I reckon it, it would have been illegal for somebody under felony indictment <laughs> to have done so. So good, good move. That number was two. one of the questions we had initially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, number two, well, look, he's, he's still in a Republican primary and obviously Second Amendment voters 
uh, make up a huge uh, pillar of the Republican primary base. So he's catering to those Republicans. So, look, I'll just tell you that the inside of that gun store looks like the inside of a lot of gun stores I've been inside of in uh, Kentucky. And so uh, there's a lot of a lot of Republicans and conservatives out there that would appreciate uh, seeing a Republican candidate for office uh, go in there. Now, whether this is part of his pivot to the general election, like he has on other issues, I don't know about that. But for Republicans, uh, this was this would be a, a absolutely something that, that would be uh, they'd like to see it. As we're seeing that stop, right, for Donald Trump, this, of course, comes on the heels, Kate, of President Biden creating the first ever office at the White House for gun violence prevention. Is that an issue that Biden can run and win on in 2024? Oh, I think no question. And I think if this is Donald Trump's attempt to begin to pivot to the general uh, on guns, then this is a really weird choice because he's underscoring the fact that his Supreme Court, he's giving Democrats an opportunity to remind voters that his Supreme Court relaxed uh, gun restrictions in 2022. It's incredibly unpopular across the country. It's really unpopular with uh, independent voters, with suburban voters, with suburban women in particular. Uh, and it's also, as Scott said, it's a reminder that he's under felony indictment. So an interesting choice on his part. But it, but in all seriousness, it is an opportunity for, for Democrats to drive a really hard contrast on this issue that is very uh, motivating to, uh, to people all across the country who are worried about the safety of their kids when they go to school, worried about the safety uh, of their friends and family when they're uh, out on the street. So what, what Donald Trump is doing here is effectively just uh, reminding voters that uh, he is all about unrestricted access to guns, uh, which is a, a huge difference from where Joe Biden is and is, frankly, I think is going to prove to be a losing issue uh, for Republicans as they move into the general election next year. Um, we're going to go rapid fire. We got a lot of issues to get to today. So let's also talk. Let's also talk strikes. Let's talk union workers. President Biden, of course, headed to Michigan tomorrow to join the UAW workers there on the strike line. Um, how vulnerable is that voting block, Scott, for Joe Biden? I think it's very vulnerable because I think one of the reasons they're on strike is they feel like their paychecks just don't go as far as they used to in Joe Biden's America. If you look at the top issue for voters, it's the economy and specifically inflation. They hold Joe Biden accountable for this. And so right now they're out there saying, look, we don't make enough money <laughs> to live in this world and live in this economy uh, while Joe Biden is the president. So I know he's going to uh, supposedly show solidarity with the workers, but I suspect more than a handful of them are going to have some uh, questions for him about, you know, why is it that on your watch inflation has gone up to the point where uh, I feel like my paycheck just isn't enough anymore? Kate, I'm going to come back to that in a second, but I want to pick up where Scott just left off there because my colleague Matt Egan has some exclusive reporting today. There's a new Bank of America survey that finds two in three workers questions that their wages are not keeping up with the cost of inflation. And we know that the president is pushing Bidenomics. Look, the numbers may actually be good, but people don't feel it. Why is this president having such a hard time connecting that? Well, it is a challenge. I mean, it is the the biggest, probably the single biggest communications challenge uh, that this White House faces. Obviously, I left this White House in March. I'm uh, very well familiar with the with what they're trying to achieve here. I think, um, you know, for for Joe Biden, he'll go to uh, he'll go to Michigan. He uh, will it'll give him an opportunity to talk about everything he's doing to push to make people's paychecks go farther. I think part of his what he's trying to do from a communications perspective is show that he gets it, that he understands. Uh, his aim is not to dismiss or gloss over how people are feeling. Obviously, as president, he believes that one of the biggest uh, uh, honors that he's given uh, is, is trying to ensure that people are uh, that people's lives are better day
day in, day out. And he's constantly trying to show that he, uh, you know, that he knows that. So, um, so I think that he will have the opportunity to do that, obviously, uh, on the, when he goes to the line. Uh, and then don't forget Donald Trump is also going on Wednesday, which will give, uh, will drive a huge uh, contrast between somebody in Donald Trump who said things like, well, you know, your union job should just go overseas and then you can have a better deal. We'll see if you can negotiate a better deal here in the United States. He's not somebody who has uh, historically uh, shown that he understands what working people are going through. Uh, and I, but I think this fault line is going to be a, it's going to be a powerful one. This is going to be one where uh, the contrast, I think, at the end of the day is going to be good for Joe Biden. Uh, but there's no question that this will be a big piece of where the economic debate is in this campaign. He has been talking about former President Trump has been talking about his trip to Michigan on Wednesday. Here's a quick bit of what he just recently said. So I announced that I'm going to Michigan, and then he announced 20 minutes later, I'm going to Michigan. That's where the people that run the country told him he has to go. Because he's not calling the shots. He's not calling the shots in many ways because... As the president of the United States, he really can't, right? Um, and Scott, I'm going to bring you in this in one second, but really quickly just to button this up from your perspective, Kate. Is he actually doing enough, he being Joe Biden, to explain why he doesn't call the shots? Because when you hear it coming from the former president, he says, look, he's not doing enough. There's very little the president can do to end the strike. Is that also a messaging sort of fail that we're seeing at this point? Well, wait a minute. Are we you're accepting Donald Trump's uh, definition or uh, no? I'm Joe asking Biden you not if calling this, it's not calling. I'm asking I can you if you, Joe Biden is doing enough I can to explain what his role is and can, I can be when it comes to. Those I can assure you in that White House, uh, Joe Biden is calling the shots that I can promise you. Uh, so. Uh, so, yes, I think this is again, I think this is the communications challenge that uh, that he will face over the course of the campaign is to find ways to go out to break through in a in a time when people aren't spending a whole lot of their time uh, reading the news, uh, absorbing information, you have a very limited amount of time to connect with people. And so what he Mm -hmm. has to do is to continue to go out, do things like what he's doing and going to Michigan, showing that he gets it, uh, talking about the ways in which his economic agenda has made things better and, crucially, driving the contrast with Trump. At the end of the day, elections are about choices. And so driving that contrast with Trump, talking about the ways in which, you know, when Trump was in office, his signature uh, accomplishment was uh, tax cuts for the very wealthiest, which, by the way, exploded the deficit. Uh, and and for so for him to have the opportunity to draw so, that contrast, uh, that's, that's the most important communications imperative for him. Scott, Donald Trump, uh, also we were talking about this earlier with Manu Raju, is saying, Hey, shut it all down in terms of this looming government shutdown. That is not a winning issue. We are hearing it from Republican lawmakers, too, who are concerned about it. How concerned are you about the blowback from a potential government shutdown? on Republicans and specifically on Donald Trump? Well, I, look, I, it depends. I guess if we have a three-day shutdown, no one will care that much. If we have a three-month shutdown and, uh, you know, real things start to break down out there, I guess I guess it could be more uh, of a blight on the Republican Party. What I'm more concerned about is the party and, and, a, and specifically a handful of people in it don't seem to understand right now that the Biden White House is in the middle of a high-speed come-apart. You look at this polling, concerns about his age, inflation, the economy, the border. I mean, Biden is in real trouble, and now we're shifting the attention back to uh, intra-party warfare for a shutdown in which there's no plan, uh, no end game in mind, no leverage to be had, and, and no recognition that we're in divided government. So I kind of wish the Republicans would let the let the Democrats continue to do what they're doing without uh, blowing themselves up uh, internally. Scott Jennings, Kate Benningfield, good to see you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So it was the testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson that changed the trajectory of the January 6th committee. What the former Trump White House aide is saying now about her comments just ahead of her appearance right here on The Lead tomorrow. 
In our politics lead, after explosive testimony before the House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection, former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson largely vanished from public view. But she's now speaking out. This is ahead of the release of her book, Enough. And she's defending her own credibility. What would I have to gain by coming forward? No, it would have been easier for me to continue being complicit and to stay in the comfortable zone of... I had some sense of security, a semblance of security. I knew people that I could easily reach out to for jobs. CNN Sarah Murray is with me now. We should point out that Cassidy Hutchinson is sitting down right here on the lead tomorrow with Jake. We are getting a little sense, though, of how that testimony itself changed her life. What more is she saying? Yeah, she sort of describes an isolated existence after that about not going out very much, you know, being very concerned about potential threats to her security and to her safety. She even says she didn't go back to her apartment in D.C. and even relocated to Atlanta for a few months. So there were clearly uh, some concerns about potential threats and about her whereabouts. Of course, now she has this book coming out. So we're starting to see her out here more publicly doing this TV interview. And as you said, about to speak to Jake Tapper, sort of sharing a little little bit more about what this experience was like for her, Erica. Um, In her interview, she also stands by that testimony that she made before Congress about this altercation between former President Trump and his Secret Service detail. What more is she saying about that? That's right. I mean, this was really a blockbuster allegation from her testimony describing something she had heard secondhand about how badly Donald Trump wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th. And this altercation he allegedly had with a then Secret Service agent. Take a listen to what she said during her testimony at the time. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. Now, Bobby Ingle has said he doesn't recall that instance. Uh, Another White House staffer who apparently was the person who told Cassidy Hutchinson this story has also said they don't recall that. In this CBS interview, Cassidy Hutchinson said she knows what she recalls. She said, I stand by what I testified to. Erica. Sarah Murray, appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, As you can imagine, there is a lot in Cassidy Hutchinson's new book. Jake, again, is going to sit down with her tomorrow right here on The Lead. Be sure to tune in at 4 o'clock Eastern. Up next, right here, a musty story of resilience. An Air Force veteran badly burned in Afghanistan. Now his moment of praise as he uses his situation to inspire others. In our national lead, a remarkable, inspiring story of one Air Force veteran's sacrifice and resilience. In 2005, doctors gave Israel del Toro a 15% chance of survival after his Humvee rolled over an IED in Afghanistan. He suffered third-degree burns on 80% of his body, was in a coma for three months, and doctors said if, if he did survive, he would need a respirator to breathe. And they also said he'd never walk again. Not only did he defy all odds, he actually went on to receive the Purple Heart. Jake Tapper recently sat down to speak with Senior Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro Jr. about his most recent accomplishment, his memoir, A Patriot's Promise, Protecting My Brothers, Fighting for My Life, and Keeping My Word. And here it is. I have a copy right here. Thank you so much. It's a great read. So when your Humvee ran over the IED in Afghanistan, you write that your life flashed before your eyes, but you also say, quote, They weren't memories recalled, 
They were moments yet to come. Explain what you saw. Yeah, so I saw three distinct images, I remember. It's, you know, me and my wife finally getting married by the church after, you know, we tried so many times, but every time we tried, it got canceled. Uh, us honeymooning in Greece, because uh, that's where my wife has always gone, which I still owe her that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that's still yet to come, I guess. Right. But lastly, was me teaching my boy how to play baseball. I was a ball player, and, you know, that was always my dream to teach my son how to play ball. And it, those are the things that popped in my head. Um, at, the, at the heart of your memoir is a promise you made to your dying father when you were 12 to take care of your family. And keeping that promise required a lot of sacrifice, um, such as getting a full scholarship to, to college. How else did that promise change you? You know, that, that, that promise guided me on a path to where any time I felt like I can't do this, I will recall what that promise I made about that, and it will get me back on path. And, you know, by speaking and telling people we all have sparks and we can overcome them, usually on our own, we need help by sometimes hearing a story like mine. So in the book, you write about military families, uh, which is a topic we cover a lot on the show. You say they, quote, see us at our very worst. They're the ones who have the hard conversations and make the most important decisions, along with the doctors, to amputate or not, to fight infection or fight death, unquote. And you say... Your wife is your hero. Tell us about that. She is, you know, my, my wife. Here's this 100-pound, you know, from Mexico, doesn't speak a word of English, and with a three-year-old son, and her having to come here to States, take my son to daycare, you know, be with, by my side every day, and then at night go pick up my son from daycare and then put him to sleep. And, and for her to, to release when he's fine asleep, to go in the bathroom and cry because the pressure, you know, that all that pressure was on her. But, man, she was like freaking like a 200-pound warrior. There are a lot of moving sections, but one in particular, you, you recall seeing your reflection by accident in a hospital mirror. Uh, and it scared you. Not, uh, you were scared about how your son would, would react. Um, how has your service and, and that accident, the IED attack, how has that impacted your relationship with your son? I was terrified when I first saw myself, you know. It wasn't a vanity thing. It was, at the time, I thought, I'm a 30-year-old man. I think I look like a monster. What's my 3-year-old son going to think? So when my, my son did see me, he's like, Dad? I'm like, yeah, and comes up and hugs me. And from one of the most, most amazing moments besides seeing him being born. But our bond strengthened because we were always together. Yeah, I mean. One of the most amazing things is, and people might not know this or even understand it, you wanted to re-enlist in the Air Force. I, I did. Uh, you know, when I got hurt, you know, they said that my military career was over. And I didn't want it to be over. And I remember people kept asking me, why do you want to stay in? It's like, you know, Sergeant Del Torre, you become a public speaker, you can make money, you know, a lot of money as a public speaker, a civilian, you know, you get your retirement. I love serving my country. I love being in the Air Force. So when I was able to show that on February uh, 2010, that's when I became the first 100% disabled to relist. Toward the end of the book, you write, quote, my disability doesn't define me. How I choose to live my life is what defines me. So you, looking back at all your accomplishments in the military and in sports and with your family and this book and your speaking, your motivational speaking, what are you most proud of and, and what is next for you? Uh, I think the most proud of is that I got to retire when I wanted to in the military, do 22 years. 
after all that grim diagnosis I got uh, and, and to watch my, not my son grow up and be there with my wife. You know, people always ask, what do you want to be remembered as? It's like, well, I want to be remembered as a good friend, a great teammate, but even a better dad. It is a remarkable book. Retired Master Sergeant Israel Del Toro. Izzy, thank you so much for being here. We love having you on. Thanks, brother. Just ahead here, the specialized U.S. military equipment now in the hands of Ukrainian fighters. In our money lead, if only Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher had just waited a few more days before announcing those planned comebacks. The strike ending for the Writers Guild of America. After nearly four months, they agreed to a tentative contract with major studios and streaming services. The strike has cost the industry an estimated $5 billion. Union leaders call the three-year proposal exceptional, saying the deal addresses concerns from across its ranks, from movies to TV to artificial intelligence. Critics, though, do warn it may be too early for viewers to celebrate. Higher costs here for streamers could ultimately make their way down to consumers. A reminder, if you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage for CNN continues right now with Pamela Brown in The Situation Room. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.